0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's passage is from Acts 28, 17-31. Acts 28, 17-31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us. For for many people do too. Um, I I love it when you read scripture for this church. I know many people do too. Um, All right. We're at the end of the book of Acts. We made it. We did it, guys. I love this passage, uh, and I love that we're coming to the end of the book of Acts on the Sunday right before Advent, because the two are connected. So how are they connected? Well, we live between two Advents. And the book of Acts tells the story of the beginning of the era of history that we live in as Christians now. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to do a little bit later on in this service before coming to the communion table, one of the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed, which is this kind of gathering up of the fundamental beliefs of all Christians everywhere, is we say that we believe that Jesus is, quote, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Or if you prefer the Nicene Creed, we say in there, Jesus will, quote, come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Part of the historic Christian confession includes this belief that Jesus is returning, that he's coming again, that we haven't seen the last of him on earth, that Jesus is returning. And during Advent, what we celebrate is we celebrate his first coming in the form of a baby born in Bethlehem. And we then also simultaneously anticipate his return, that he's coming again. If you're a Christian, part of what you believe is that Jesus is coming again. And that's a weird thing to believe in the world's standards. But if this is our Father's world, if he made it, if Christ is present at creation, he's coming again. He says he's coming again to judge. To judge the living and the dead. And what that means is when we celebrate Advent, we're remembering the first coming of Jesus, we're anticipating the second, and we're acknowledging that we live between these two Advents. And so the book of Acts is so hel- helpful for us because it is the historical record of the early days of this era that we live in the era between the advents of Christ, his first coming and his second coming, the formation of the early church. And so what I wanna do is I wanna unpack the passage that TK just read for us, and then I wanna spend most of our time together actually reflecting and looking at the lives of some of the major characters in the book of Acts and what happened to them after the book closes. And so we'll get into the stories of people like Luke and Timothy, and Titus, and James, and John, and Paul, and Peter, people whose lives are woven in there, Barnabas, John Mark, Onesimus, Philemon, so we'll get to that. But first, let's look at what's happening here. So last week, we talked about Paul and the shipwreck that he was in, and they ended up on the island of Malta, and they had to stay there in winter and wait until the seas were safe to travel again. Three months has now passed in Malta, and the seas become safe for travel, and so Paul, as a prisoner, and his companions are now taken to Rome. And they get to Rome, and after three days of being there, Paul asks, for the leaders of the synagogue to come to him. And this was his pattern when he would enter a city, he would preach the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. This was a pattern that he had throughout his ministry. And here he does it again, only in this this situation, he can't go to the synagogue because he's in prison. And so they have to come to them. It's house arrest, people can come and visit him, but he can't go to them, they have to come to him. And so he asks for the leaders of the synagogue in Rome to come. And part of the reason I think he wants them to come is because the Roman leaders of the synagogue have a lot of influence that could potentially get Paul released. How? Well, if they hear from him and they find that there's really no reason for him to be in chains, then that opinion is gonna carry a lot of weight with the Roman authorities who have very little interest in settling religious disputes. That's not their job. That's not what they wanna be about. And so if the synagogue leaders can say to the Roman officials, he's not a problem, that's good for Paul. And so he gathers, they come and they listen, and he presents his case. And one of the things that he says to them is so fascinating. He says, listen, I'm not, this is my paraphrase. He says, listen, I'm not here to cause you any trouble. He says, I haven't come here to bring charges against you. The prisoner says. But if you'll indulge me, what I'd like is I'd like to explain myself to you. Because I was sent to Rome because I believe that the Messiah has come. And the Jewish leadership believed in the Messiah. And Paul's saying, you know the hope of Israel? I believe that the hope of Israel has has come, the Messiah. So, I'm not in chains because of my betrayal of Israel's hope. I'm in chains because of my loyalty to Israel's hope. And then the leaders say to him, This is also fascinating. They say to him, We don't know anything about your case. So, after all that he's been through, getting arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea, being imprisoned there for two years, going on this this voyage across the sea where they're shipwrecked and Malti finally gets to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar because the religious leaders are bringing this charge against him. He has the religious leaders of Rome there and they say, we don't know anything about why you're here. But we have heard of you and we've received, we've received no letter from Judea discussing your case. We haven't even come across anybody who's spoken evil of you. But we do want to hear from you. And the reason we want to hear from you is because even though we're unfamiliar with your case, we know that Jews throughout Rome speak against the sect to which you belong, which has a church here in Rome. Oh, how'd that happen? How is there a church in Rome? Paul hasn't been there yet. Somebody else has. Peter. Peter has been there. And he's proclaimed the gospel. And when Paul comes in chains into Rome, there's already a church. There are believers there. And so the religious leaders say, let us gather up our leadership and come back at a later date so you can explain to us what all this is about. And so that's what they do. They set a time with Paul when they're gonna come back with the rest of their colleagues and they're gonna hear him explain what it is that he believes. And so that day comes and then this large number of local leaders come to Paul's house where he's under house arrest. They get there in the morning and the passage says, from morning until night, Paul proclaimed the gospel to them. Can you imagine Can you imagine what that must have been like for Paul to finally be there in Rome, which he'd had his eyes set on for a long time? The Lord had told him, you're going to go proclaim the gospel in Rome. And there he is, and he's doing it. What happens? The same thing that happened everywhere. He preached the gospel. Some people believed. Some people rejected it. This is the Lord's business, right? It's his deal. Paul's proclaiming the gospel. People believe. People reject it. And then... We're treated to this little detail that says those who were persuaded got into an argument with those who were not persuaded and then they had a fight. And they argued and they argued and there were a lot of people kind of hanging around and those who were really into the argument stuck around and those who were not that into the argument started to just go home until it just kind of filtered out. And then there were not that many people left. But after that meeting, people kept coming back to hear from Paul. Others would hear and they'd just dismiss him. But others would hear and listen. But none of them, those who believed and those who disbelieved, none of them pressed for his death. None of them said this man deserves to die. And then Paul spent the next two years under house arrest. So if you're keeping score at home, right? He was arrested in Jerusalem probably four and a half to five years before he gets released in Rome. It's a long period of time. And while he's under house arrest, he pays his own way through tent making and through the generosity of other Christians, believers there in Rome, believers around the Roman Empire. And he's under constant watch of a soldier. Sometimes he's chained to this guard. Sometimes he's not but he continues this work as an evangelist. He continues proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This one who said, I've resolved to know Christ and him crucified and nothing else. That's what he continues to do. And though he couldn't travel, people are now coming to him. And many people come to hear him teach. And their hearts and their ears and their eyes are opened. And he welcomed welcomed them all and he continued preaching Christ. And he also used this time to write. He wrote several letters to the churches throughout the Roman Empire, some of which are preserved still today in the canon of the New Testament, some of which are lost to time in God's providence. But that's what happened. Now, we come to the end of the book of Acts, and it makes us wonder what happened to some of these characters, to Barnabas and John Mark and James and John and Peter and people like this. Let's get into that a little bit. As a way of doing that, let me say, let me frame it. So it's Thanksgiving weekend. When we gather together, many of you are here, you're seated with people you spent Thanksgiving with, people who have come in from out of town perhaps, or, or, or you know, you're spending an extended weekend together and you're here. For many of us during the holidays, part of what makes the season what it is is that we have rhythms and routines, places we go, people we see, things we eat, recipes we make. Right, and, and we sort of look to these seasons to be seasons of great stability and predictability. But then things happen in our lives where those routines get upset, right? Um, somebody moves away, somebody passes away. Somebody uh, you know somebody gets married, and now there's a new family uh, in the mix, um, all kinds of things. You can do one thing for Thanksgiving or Christmas ten years in a row, and eventually at some point you're going to do something different probably and for some of us, that can be very upsetting because part of what we're trying to do is have our feet planted we're, we're trying to get into a rhythm where where we, we know what's going to happen and And then we get kind of just spun forward into these new things, and we have to embrace them, and we have to welcome them, and we have to adapt, and we have to grow, and we have to feel kind of out of sorts, and we have to feel unsure of what the future is gonna hold and what this is gonna look like, and are we forming a new tradition, or are we not? And we just don't even know. And when we look at the lives of the people that we're about to talk about here, these are people who, when Jesus entered the picture into their lives, Whatever it was that they thought their lives were going to be, whatever they thought their lives were going to look like, changed. Flannery O'Connor said it this way, Jesus done thrown everything off balance. That's what he does, right? He takes us, and it's like Rich Mullins saying, he shakes us forward and shakes us free. And so we have these people none of whom are doing what they imagined they were going to be doing probably when they were children. They couldn't have. So what happened to them? A lot of the central figures in the early church, what happens to their stories is historically a bit unclear, um, but there are clues that help us piece things together and early church historians who make comments and, and, and write about these characters and it helps us put together some of the puzzle. But one of the things that runs through the puzzle is there's just suffering after suffering after suffering. So let's get into that, yeah? James, James the brother of Jesus. Not James of Peter, James, and John, but James the brother of Jesus who did not believe that his brother was the Messiah prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection. That James. James, Jesus' brother who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem for many years. The James that Paul visited when he was arrested in Jerusalem. Though James didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah prior to the resurrection, we read about that in Mark 3, 21, he and his other brothers all came to believe that Jesus was the Christ after he was raised from the dead, and they gave their lives to the building of the church, 1 Corinthians 9, 1-5. Though James's brothers went out as missionaries, James felt called by God, to serve the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 2.9, we learn about that. The epistle which bears his name, the epistle of James, this is a fascinating detail about James' epistle, is thought to be one of the earliest letters to circulate, meaning that the book of James would have stood alone for a time as many people's only written explanation of the Christian life. That's wild, especially if you've read the book of James to have this letter that is telling you live a holy life. It would have been the only thing people would have had for a period of times. James died as a martyr. He was thrown off of the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, There was an early church historian, Eusebius of Caesarea, who described his death. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple and threw down the just man and they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall. Barnabas, remember Barnabas? First missionary journey, cousin to John, Mark. Barnabas continued as a missionary He took his cousin Mark with him, John Mark, on the second mission to Cyprus in Acts 15, 36 to 39. We read about that. Six years after Barnabas and Paul parted over Mark's decision to leave their first missionary journey, Paul mentions Barnabas as his still active co-laborer for Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. And so what that means is though Barnabas and Paul weren't together in body anymore, they were very much together in mission, and Paul saw it that way. Early church historians hold that Barnabas was also martyred and that his cousin John Mark witnessed his cousin's death and buried him privately. John Mark, for his part, He resurfaces in Scripture about 10 years after leaving Paul on that first missionary journey. Interestingly, it's Paul himself who mentions John Mark in his letter to the Colossian church. What he does is he asks them to welcome John Mark when he comes, because he's coming not just as Paul's assistant, but as one of Paul's fellow laborers in the gospel. During Paul's imprisonment in Rome, he asked Timothy to bring John Mark when he came because John Mark was useful to him. 2 Timothy 4:11. Simon Peter also benefited from John Mark's service and counted him as a son, we read in 1 Peter 5:13. So John Mark went on to write the gospel that bears his name, Mark. And Eusebius the historian said that Mark became an evangelist in Egypt and that he founded a church in Alexandria over which he became a bishop. Titus. Titus was known for his diligence and his dependability. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 7, 6. He continued as a missionary. Paul charged him to strengthen the churches through sound doctrinal teaching, through good works, and he told Titus, appoint elders in every city where you visit, elders in the church. Later, Titus took the gospel to Dalmatia, which is present-day Croatia. We read about that in 2 Timothy 4.10. And there he lived out the remainder of his days in Croatia. Timothy. Timothy was Paul's dear son in the faith. He led the church in Ephesus, and he also traveled to tend to Paul during his Roman imprisonment. So while Paul is in Rome, Timothy is tending to him. We see that in Colossians 1.1, Philippians 1.1, and the first verse of Philemon. Paul commends Timothy as an example of Christ-like character. He's humble, he's teachable, he's gentle. Early records by Eusebius suggest that Timothy became the first bishop of Ephesus, and his remains were later interred in the Church of the Apostles in Istanbul. I can't wait to tell you about the second bishop of Ephesus, But before I do that, let's talk about Luke. Luke stayed with Paul during his imprisonment in Caesarea and in Rome. We remember from last week when we were reading the story of the shipwreck that all of a sudden in the book of Acts, the narrator is using the term we. We were were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. That's Luke writing. He was with Paul when this was happening. And he was with him not just to care for him, but Luke was there because he was studying. He was gathering up stories and doctrine for the two books that he was writing, the gospel bearing his name, Luke, and the Acts of the Apostles. As a writer, Luke showed a remarkable command and elegance when it came to using the Greek language. He cared deeply about historical accuracy. And along with being a writer, some traditions also hold that Luke was a painter. And I so wish I had more information about that. Some believe that Luke was martyred. Others say that he died of old age at 84 while living in Greece. Onesimus and Philemon, the runaway slave and the former slaveholder who both became Christians. What happened to them? Scholars believe the fact that Paul's letter to Philemon was preserved and distributed among the churches indicates that Philemon did in fact receive Onesimus back as a brother and that he freed him and then sent him back to minister alongside Paul as Paul had requested in Philemon verses 13 and 14. Some historians believe that Onesimus himself went on to become the second bishop in Ephesus, that he took over for Timothy, that he was there 50 years after his conversion and became the bishop of Ephesus. John and Peter, after they were arrested in the temple for preaching Christ, they both continued to lead as pillars of the church in Jerusalem until the Lord led them on to works in other places. John served the church in Ephesus for a season before being exiled to the island of Patmos by the Roman emperor Domitian, who reigned from AD 81 to 96. While he was in Patmos, John had the vision that he wrote about in Revelation. And after Domitian's death, it seems that John returned to Ephesus. And he wrote the gospel bearing his name and the three epistles bearing his name, first, second, and third John, and then the book of Revelation. And he did all this as an old man during the last quarter of the first century. John was the only one of the original 12 disciples to die of natural causes. Judas took his own life and then the other 10 were martyred. Peter, Simon Peter, was crucified by Nero in Rome around AD 64. Jesus alluded to his martyrdom in John 21, 18 to 19. Peter, the legend goes, asked to be crucified upside down because he did not count himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. When Peter left the Jerusalem church in the faithful hands of James, he went out as a missionary in the same way that Paul did. And around the time Nero came to power in early AD 60s, Peter arrived in Rome and there he preached Christ and a church was founded. And he helped Mark write his gospel. We read about that in 1 Peter five thirteen. He also wrote the two epistles bearing his name. And then Rome had this great fire in AD 64 it, didn't, it wasn't long after Peter's arrival when that happened. The rumors spread that Nero had actually started the fire so that he could rebuild the city in his own, to his own glory, and he needed a scapegoat, somebody to blame the fire on. And so he pinned the blame on Christians, and he persecuted them mercilessly. And according to Tacitus, the historian, many Christians were crucified and set on fire to light up the streets. Peter died during that persecution. As for Paul, his imprisonment seemed to intensify as the months passed here. One friend, a Christian from Ephesus named Onesiphorus, came to Paul's aid during this time. He didn't conceal the fact that he was looking for Paul in a very bold way. He said, I'm here to take care of him. And Onesiphorus' courage to seek the imprisoned apostle was a balm to Paul's heart. The political climate in Rome didn't favor Christians, and eventually Paul's case was heard, and it seems that he was acquitted at that point, uh, which he equated in 2 Timothy 4 as being rescued from the lion's mouth, which is most likely a reference to Nero. Um, Historians don't agree on exactly what happened next, but they do concur that soon after he was rearrested by Nero and he was martyred by Nero, the same as Peter. So we look at those stories, of the lives of these people who came into a relationship with Jesus and it spun them out into the world. And for all of this, history does see through a glass darkly. But while the details may be hard for us to pin down, the net effect is that every key player in the building of the early church, every single one of them suffered. As a people who are pretty fiercely committed to our comforts, it's important for us to understand that every key player in the building of the early church suffered. And most of them died for their faith. Though much of what happened to the apostles after Peter and Paul's imprisonment in Rome is unclear, here's what we know. What we know is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ opened a door between the falling, groaning world into which he was born and the renewal of all things. And that door was a stone that was rolled back by the very finger of God from the mouth of a grave outside of Jerusalem. And the risen Christ didn't just give his people new life. He gave them each other. He put them together in a community of faith where they would live and they would move and they would have their being under the mercy of their gracious king who would call them his beloved bride, the one for whom he would return. That second advent. And he sent his Holy Spirit to live in their hearts and to cultivate in them things like boldness and humility and unity that would make them more into a single thing than just this random collection of individuals. Together they would be the church, the church, and they would be radiant and they would be the beloved bride of Christ. And so after the resurrection of Jesus, his disciples lived the remainder of their days laying down their lives for the sake of making known his gospel. What came from them through the power of the Holy Spirit was a movement. A movement that spread like a fire around the world and continues even now. Believers in Jesus Christ are those who once walked in darkness but have since been brought into the light of God's truth. And there's mystery here. There's so much mystery here. There's mystery in every facet of this story. But also, even though God is mysterious, He has chosen not to be unknowable. Instead, what He's done is He's given us His Word. Told is a story with poetry and teaching woven through. And what does that word tell us? It tells us that he has worked in time and space through politics and kingdoms, and also through an unassuming virgin and lowly fisherman to make himself known and to accomplish his will. He has parted the seas and he has raised the dead. And he has comforted the afflicted and he has afflicted the comfortable. He has commissioned his people to proclaim his grace. And then he has gathered them to himself when they have died doing that. He has called and preserved a people from himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they are scattered across the globe and down through time even now. And they are an imperfect people. We are an imperfect people, full of ambition and fear and poor judgment. And we do not point to the goodness we obtain in Christ nearly as often as we point to our need for the forgiveness and redemption that he gives, but we remain. She remains. The bride of Christ. Here we are. After all that has happened from the fall of man to the covenant of grace, God cut with Abraham in which he promised to never leave or forsake his people from the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles to coming home to a Roman occupied state from the birth of Christ to his death and his resurrection from his ascension into heaven to the spread of the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, the enduring mystery of faith, remains and what is that mystery of faith it is this christ has died christ is risen christ will come again and we live between two advents let me pray father You are glorious. The glory in the way that you have preserved and established your church on earth is magnificent to behold because it's so full of brokenness. It's so full of imperfect people. And it's you accomplishing amazing things in the midst of that. And it's you showing yourself to be faithful To people who can be so fickle. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you would make us to be people who want to see our lives used by you, even if that means you shake us forward and you shake us free, even if that means you throw everything off balance. Would you cause us to trust in you? We're thankful for the preserving grace at work in the lives of all these people we just talked about, that we would be able to gather here in this room and worship you as your church, your continuing church on earth. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.